I'm going to go really deep right off the bat tonight, church. Uh, is that okay? Okay, Theo's ready. Uh, for the rest of us, I wonder tonight, church, do you have any regrets? Uh, when you look back at the story of your life, uh, is there anything you just wished you hadn't done? Uh, are there things, you, you, if you had your, your time over again, you'd go back and you'd change them, or the words you'd say a little bit differently, uh, conversations you, you would or wouldn't ha- uh, have, lines or chapters in the story of your life that you would actually rewrite if you had the chance? See, I, I think the truth of the matter is we actually all do. Uh, that we've all probably got a list a mile high of things we would do differently, things we would change if we had the chance. Uh, maybe for you, it's a, a stupid decision you made in high school. Uh, or, or maybe it's a job opportunity that you turned down, but you know, in hindsight, you should have taken it. Or uh, maybe you just regret not buying Amazon shares when they were trading for a dollar each. Uh, but <laughs> the truth of the matter is, yeah, we, we all have regrets. Uh, but, but what I think you would actually find really telling tonight, church, is if I went around and I asked each and every one of you, what is it that you regret most? Uh, and it's okay, I'm not actually going to do that, so you can, you can take a deep breath. But uh, what I think you would find if I did that is that most of our biggest regrets in our lives, they have to do with people. Um, a conversation that didn't go the way we wanted to go, um, a time we, we walked away when we should have stayed, a, a stupid comment you made to your wife that our biggest and deepest regrets they tend to orbit around broken relationships, conflict, and damaged people. Uh, In fact, in 2011, two uh, psychologists uh, from America, they they embarked on a a study to work out what is it that people regret the most. Uh, And they conducted a nationwide survey, and what they found is that 43% of people regretted something to do with their relationships. Uh, Whether that was regret about love interests or uh, their relationship with their kids and their family, or um, just, just some sort of relational regret. And for point of comparison, 6% of people regretted their health choices, uh, 13% of people regretted their education choices, and 12% of people regretted their careers, but 43% of people regretted something to do with the relationship. See, church, people are messy. Conflict is messy, and, and often we don't get it right. And so what I want to talk about tonight is is how are we actually supposed to do it? How are we supposed to deal with conflict and and, and situational mess? Uh, How are we supposed to have arguments and disagreements? How are we supposed to handle relationships when life gets messy? And I want to do that tonight by walking through a a story in in the book of Acts where, honestly, I don't think the characters get it right. I think people make mistakes uh, they, they get it wrong, and those mistakes, they, they ruin relationships. Uh, that where we're jumping into the book of Acts tonight, I think it's a moment that if you sat down with the Apostle Paul at the end of his life and you said, hey, what is it you regretted the most? He'd point back to this as one of those moments. Uh, so if you've got your Bible, we're going to be in Acts chapter 15, uh, Acts chapter 15, and we'll be picking up at verse 36. Uh, if you don't have your Bible with you, it will be up on the screen. Um, all right, verse 36. And after some days. So uh, let me just stop there. The, the some days there uh, is sort of the, the period of time immediately after the Council of Jerusalem. Uh, so if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, 
Uh, there's this big uh, issue in the church about how they're going to deal with Gentiles, uh, whether or not they need to become Jews first, whether or not they need to be circumcised. Um, and the church decides they need to do something about this. They bring everyone into Jerusalem and they sit down and have a talk about it. Uh, and by the end of it, they say, you know what? Um, the, the Gentiles, they don't need to be circumcised, which I think all the men can say a nice amen to that one. Uh, and everyone goes home happy. Um, and, and so what happens is, is Paul and Barnabas, they return to their home church in Antioch. Um, and in all likelihood, they probably stay in Antioch, uh, teaching and preaching for the winter months. Uh, so they're there, they're, they're building up the body of Christ, they're, they're doing their thing. Uh, most historians probably say that uh, Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians during this period. Uh, but otherwise, it's a pretty quiet time in what has been an otherwise uh, hectic decade of ministry for these two men. Uh, so there you go. So after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and let us see how they are. Uh, so evidently, Paul is getting a bit antsy with just sitting at home in one city, not moving around and, and he's ready to go back out go and visit all the churches they planted a couple years ago and just see how they're going, seeing how they're growing, seeing how they're holding on to the gospel. Uh, verse 37, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Uh, so Barnabas, he's on board. He's like, yep, let's do this. I'll just go away and I'll get John Mark and then we can set out on this voyage. Um, and I know that sounds like a bit of an innocuous statement, but uh, that little suggestion that they bring along John Mark with them, it's about to lead to an absolutely massive blowout disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. Uh, so in order for us to understand that, let me just quickly remind us of who John Mark is. Uh, we actually first met John Mark back in Acts chapter 12, uh, which for us was a, a couple months ago, that uh, when, when Peter gets arrested by King Herod and uh, the angel rocks up for a miraculous episode of prison, prison break, uh, it, it's actually to the house of John Mark's mother that Paul makes a beeline after his rescue. Uh, funnily enough, he gets there and he knocks on the door and, and everyone's too busy praying to actually let him in. Uh, but that's a sermon for another night. Uh, but so uh, John Mark's parents, they're involved in the church. They're there right from the start of things. Uh, later on in the book of Colossians, we find out that uh, John Mark is actually Barnabas's cousin. So he's got another sort of link in there to ministry through family. Uh, but, but all that to say, it, it's really not that surprising uh, that when Paul and Barnabas head out on their very first mission trip, they decide to take along Barnabas's younger cousin, John Mark. Uh, and at first, things go really well. John Mark is helpful. He's sort of acting as an intern, assisting them with little bits and pieces. Uh, but he's there on the journey with them. And everything goes really well until Paul and Barnabas start facing some opposition. Uh, and what happens is, uh, only after only their third stop on this missionary journey, uh, they, they, they get some opposition from some people that are anti the gospel and John Mark, he flakes out. He's like, nah, I'm done. I can't do this. And he leaves the mission trip. Uh, and, and you're reading through the, if you're reading through that section of Acts, we're not given a whole lot of detail as to why he actually leaves. Uh, so, so maybe we'll give him some, a benefit of the doubt. Uh, maybe he was just homesick. Uh, maybe he was just tired of the long nights and the, the massive walking journey this mission trip was. Uh, or maybe, and, and this is where I land, uh, maybe he didn't like the fact that they were leaving towns and people were throwing rocks at them or trying to arrest them. Uh, but, but in any case, for whatever reason he left, uh, Paul is not impressed at all. 
uh, that verse 38, Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to do the work. Uh, And and that uh, word there for one who had withdrawn, it's a little bit stronger, I think, in the Greek. Um, It literally means one who has stood to the side or one who has deserted from a party. Uh, And and look, what we need to understand about Paul and Barnabas is Paul's a doer, right? He gets stuff done. He's a little bit abrasive. Uh, He's all about the mission of God. He's straight to the point. Uh, At one point in his life, he was actually a Pharisee of Pharisees. And I think there's still a little bit of that deep down at the soul level. Uh, And so what's happening here is he looks at John Mark and he's like, yeah, I get that you want to come with right now, but you've let us down before. And honestly, I think it's too big of a risk to bring you along this time because the mission of God is far too important for you to come along and make a mess of it. Uh, Barnabas, on the other hand, Barnabas is a people person through and through. Uh, that there's a reason he's known as the son of encouragement. Uh, and so I, I think he looks at John Mark and he's like, okay, well, yeah, he's let us down before, but uh, he, he can be reconciled. He can have a second chance. He, he can be restored. Uh, and he, instead of seeing his failures, he actually sees the man that John Mark could be if he's given one more opportunity to prove himself. Uh, and, and so is either party wrong or right here? I, I don't know. I would hesitate to say so. Uh, I think they're just holding two different views about what the point of this mission is. Uh, the, the question Paul is asking is, well, what can this man do for the mission of God? And the answer is come to as well, not much. But Barnabas is asking, no, what can the mission of God do for this man? And the answer to that question is a lot of difference. Um, and both of them are holding on to this, uh, this view. Both those are legitimate views. Uh, But the way the verbs play out here, it's clear that neither of these uh, two men are willing to budge on the position they've taken. Uh, That that Barnabas literally in the Greek says he has planned with full resolve, that he was determined to take John Mark with them. And Paul, Paul was insisting that they didn't. And so what happens is verse 39, and there arose a sharp disagreement such that they separated from each other. And again, the, the, the word there, sharp disagreement, it's a little bit stronger. Uh, it literally means to come alongside someone with a sharp knife. Uh, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's used to describe violent anger and passionate action. Uh, in other words, this is not like a little disagreement. Uh, this is not a little spat between friends. This is a full-blown argument. It's violent, it's angry, and it's passionate in how they're expressing it. And look, honestly, can, can you just imagine what they would have looked like? Like um, Paul and Barnabas, they're sitting in a room, there's maps splayed out, they're working out their journey, and Paul's going, Barnabas, we can't take him with. He's a liability, not an asset. Uh, he, he's let us down before, he's gonna do it again. No way am I risking the mission of God for this one man. And then Barnabas responds, no, Paul, we've gotta give him a second chance. Uh, I talked to him, he's really apologetic, he's gonna do better this time. And honestly, I think he's got a calling on his life for ministry. You know, Paul, being Paul, probably interrupts Barnabas and he's like, no, we're not doing it. We're not babysitting someone on this mission journey. It's too important. Uh, He can be in ministry. It's just his ministry can be somewhere we're not. Uh, And then it just gets worse and worse. Barnabas brings up the fact that he was the one to give Paul a second chance when no one else would. Um, Paul brings up the fact that this is Barnabas' cousin, so there's some nepotism involved. It, It just 
goes south and until eventually they're yelling at each other, one of them loses it and they walk out of the room. Does that sound familiar to anyone? <laughs> no, cool, we, we all don't have conflict, it's good. Um, see church, the truth of the matter is we do actually all have conflict. We're all going to face arguments, we're all gonna face disagreements with others that uh, we're all either walking out of a season of conflict, uh, we're about to walk into a season of conflict or we're in conflict right now. That again, people are broken, people sin, we, we make mistakes. And so as a necessary outflow from that, there will necessarily uh, be conflict in this life. And, and honestly, the fact that you're a Christian doesn't take that, that fact away. Uh, I, I mean, I would actually go as far as saying that, that there possibly should be more conflict inside the church than there should outside of it, okay? And, and just hear me, I don't, don't hear this wrong. Uh, I think there should be more grace given. There should be more forgiveness. There should be more uh, space for other people's shortfalling uh, inside the church than there is outside of it. Uh, but the level of conflict you can actually have with someone is directly proportionate to how much relational intimacy there is between you and that other person. Uh, that it is always the people closest to us who can hurt us the most, uh, who can throw in that little jab right at the end that just pushes us over the end, uh, the edge, uh, who can call out our faults or our weak points in such a way that just, it cuts deeper. Uh, and, and so if we're actually doing this thing called church correctly, and we're, we're taking off the masks, and we're, we're letting down the walls, and we're being vulnerable with one another, uh, I think that leaves a lot more room for conflict and people to be hurt. And look, honestly, that's what's happening here, right? Uh, I mean, Paul and Barnabas, they've known each other for at least 10 years at this point. Uh, that it's Barnabas who uh, sort of defends Paul in front of the other apostles when uh, no one else would, would trust him after his radical conversion. Uh, when Barnabas is planting the church in Antioch, he goes out of his way to go and find Paul and bring him into ministry in Antioch. Uh, they've gone on mission trips together. They've seen success and failure together. That there has to be just an incredible level of intimacy between these two men that has developed over the years. And honestly, all that really means is they can hurt each other like no one else can. See, again, being a Christian does not mean you won't face conflict. But what should be different is how we choose to respond to that. Uh, and this is honestly where the verse gets a little bit difficult for me to work with. Uh, because the way I read this text, I don't think they get it right. I, I don't think they handle this conflict in the most God-honoring way. Again, I think there's yelling. I, I think there's um, hurt on both sides. That things got ugly. That these, these men sort of let themselves slip in such a way that by the end of this conflict, they're, they're forced to go in separate directions. Uh, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to switch over to a different part of the Bible. So if you've got your Bible with you, uh, switch over to Matthew chapter 18. Um, and we're going to jump into a section of Scripture where Jesus is sitting down with the disciples. Uh, and he's sort of explaining to them that, you know, he's going to go away, that he's not going to be with them forever. And so he's just walking them through uh, how they are to do life in the absence of Jesus physically being there. Um, and evidently, he has a lot to say about how to do conflict in the context of the church. Uh, all right, so starting at Matthew uh, 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, then you have gained your brother. 
All right, so, so this is the first step in a four-part process that Jesus gives to uh, walk his disciples through how to do conflict. Uh, but before we actually go through that process itself, uh, I want to give you the principles behind what Jesus is teaching here. Uh, so firstly, Jesus starts off with this line, if your brother. In other words, what he is talking about here is um, how to have context within the, the, the uh, how to have a conflict in the context of fellowship. That in order for us to deal with arguments and conflict well, we actually have to fight from fellowship. Uh, that the, the way you actually have disagreements with people, it should look radically different inside the church as opposed to those you're having disagreements with outside of the church. Uh, and I think the reason this has to be true is because, honestly, we, we can't expect non-Christians to act as though they were Christians. Uh, that, that people that don't have a relationship with Jesus, they tend to act like they don't have a relationship with Jesus. Uh, and so what that means is if you're in a situation where an unbeliever sins against you, uh, then I don't think you're supposed to take them away one-on-one -on -one and have a conversation with them about their sin. Well, what you need to do is have a conversation with them about their general sin problem, and you use this as a gospel opportunity. Uh, that you have a conversation with them about uh, the fact that Jesus came to die for them and he's come to ransom them, and you use this, this opportunity to love them and give them grace and forgiveness and point them towards Jesus. Uh, that is your conversation. But if you're already in fellowship with that person, if it's already your brother that you're dealing with, then you are perfectly situated to walk through this process that Jesus has given us. That, that is the way we do conflict the way God says to. All right, so first that we fight from the context of fellowship. Uh, secondly, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you. Uh, that principle number two, we have conflict about God's precepts, not our preferences. Uh, I'm not going to go into too much detail here, but uh, when you're having an argument with another believer, what you need to make sure you're disagreeing about is you don't want to be disagreeing about your own preferences. You don't want to be disagreeing about something that's just the way you view things and it's just your opinion. You want to be having an argument about the word of God. That you don't try and correct someone's behavior or tell them what they're doing is wrong unless what they're doing is outside of God's plan for them. It's outside of God's law and instruction and moral character. And you've got a Bible verse that actually backs that up. Uh, and then finally, the goal is always reconciliation. Uh, that Jesus says, if this process plays out the way it's supposed to, then by the end of it, you will have gained back your brother. Uh, that when it comes to conflict in a Christian setting, the ultimate goal should always be reconciliation. You're not trying to be right. You're not trying to get your own way. You are trying to restore a relationship that has been lost. Uh, that Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression." then you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And look, this is the one area of the Christian life where uh, I think we should stand in stark contrast to the world around us. Because my relationship with you, it should actually reflect my relationship with Jesus. And when Jesus came to this earth, he did not come to be right. That if he wanted to, he could have been right that the moment someone walked up to him and spat in his face or dishonored him or didn't treat him the way he should have been treated, he could have said, cool, I'm out of here. You guys deal with your sin problem by yourselves. I'm perfect. You're not. See you later. That Jesus could have come to be right, but instead he came to reconcile. Uh, that 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, all this is from God, 
who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And so look, honestly, there should be almost nothing that another God-honoring Christian can do towards you that because of that action, you can look at them and say, okay, there is no way we can ever be reconciled now. There's almost nothing that they can fall into that category. Because honestly, if God has forgiven us of all of our sins, and though we are transgressed against an almighty and all-perfect God, and yet he chose to love us, he chose to forgive us, he chose to reconcile us onto himself, then how can we not attempt to at least do the same to those who have sinned against us? All right, so, so with that said and done, here's the process. That's step one, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That firstly, you get face to face. Uh, that Notice here, they're not talking about each other to other people. They're talking to each other about their actions. That they're getting alone, they're in private, and they're going, hey, this is where I think you're sinning against me. This is the way I think you're hurting me. Here's what I think you're doing wrong. And, and here's my Bible verse to support. And honestly, if we would just do this one thing, it would radically change how we do all our conflicts. I mean, how would every argument you've ever had in the workplace be different if instead of talking about that colleague or about your boss, you just went and talked to them? How would every conflict you've ever had with your spouse be different if you just went and talked to them about the issue? And look, I don't have a Bible verse for this. There's no scripture to back this up. But if you need to have a conversation with someone and that conversation is either serious or sensitive, then it should not be done over email. It should not be done over text message. You get face-to-face and you speak to them about the issue. That you get face-to-face, you meet in private and you try and discuss it. All right, step two. But if he does not listen, then take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That secondly, you get godly uh, mediation. Uh, and, and this isn't go and grab two friends who can hold them while you punch them in the guts. Uh, this isn't tag team confrontation. Uh, what's happening here is you've tried to reconcile with that believer one-on-one and it hasn't worked out. And, and so what you do is you go and find two or three godly men or women in your lives and you say, hey, can you, come in, can you come into the room? Can you be part of this conversation? Uh, and, and can you just, from an impartial perspective, evaluate what is going on? And honestly, this is a little bit of a scary step because what you need to accept is gonna happen if you go through with this. It is not only are they gonna try and show the other person where they are sinning, but they're also gonna to turn to you and try and reveal to you where your blind spots are. They're gonna say, hey, you're actually not getting it right in this area. Hey, you're actually, you don't actually have a sin issue here. This is just your preference. And again, if that happens, you need to be able to accept that and, and repent as well. Uh, verse 17, and if he refuses to listen to them, then go and tell it to the church. Uh, that if, if steps one and, step one and two haven't worked, then you go to the church. All right, what this does not mean is go and tell it to the church service. Uh, So please, please, please do not come here on a Sunday, run and grab the mic 
and start listing off all everyone, the way everyone has hurt you and sinned against you and just transgressed against you. Uh, if that is what Jesus wanted, wanted us to do, we'd have a part of the service dedicated to it and it would be the longest part of the service because we're all sinning all the time. And once we do that, no one would ever come back, yeah? <laughs> uh, no, what's happening here is uh, you've gone one-on-one, you've done uh, mediation, and then what you do is you go to church leadership. You go to the elders and the pastors so that they can step into the room with you uh, and they can sort of speak into the, the situation from both sides and they can try and help reconcile the relationship. Uh, and the reason this works is because uh, in, an, in a correct structure of the way the world works, uh, your, your elders and your pastors, they have a level of spiritual authority over both of you. And so they can actually speak from that place. Uh, and again, you, you both tell your side, you both show, say how you think the other person's sitting against you. And then what you do is you let the body of Christ speak into that situation and reveal to you where both of you are sitting, where both of your blind spots are. And then you, you let them give you instructions as to how you can move forward from here. And, and look, this is one of the reasons I think this process only works uh, if you've got two Christians involved. Uh, because while the first two steps may be good from like an HR perspective, uh, this one falls short if you don't have two people who are actually submitted to spiritual authority and who have the Holy Spirit inside of them to allow them to be able to do that. All right, so final step, verse 17. If he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That finally, if all else fails, you step out of fellowship. And this one's going to take a little bit of explaining because um, what many churches have taken this verse to mean is that you excommunicate the person, you kick them out of the church, and you never speak to them again. And that would be fine. It's just that does not line up at all with the Jesus I know from the rest of Scripture. Uh, so, so let me just ask you, how did Jesus actually interact with the Gentiles and the tax collectors? Did, did he reject them? Did he completely ignore them? Uh, no, he, he loved them. Uh, See, see, what I think Jesus is saying at this point is if you have to get to this stage, so if nothing else has worked up until this moment, if the person won't listen to one-on-one interaction, if they won't observe what the mediator says or what uh, church leadership says, then you you continue to love them. You continue to pour grace upon them. You continue to be uh, polite and honoring and respectful of them. It's just that now you treat them like they're a lost person. You treat them in the same way you would treat any other non-believer. That the level of fellowship you can have with that person moving forward, it is drastically lower than what it has been up until that point. Um, So the easiest way just to work through this is ask yourself, how would you interact with like a non-Christian who came to church today? Uh, I hope you'd be polite to them. Uh, maybe after the service, you'd have a, a conversation with them, a bit of a chat. Maybe you'd sit down and share a meal with them. Um, if the opportunity arose, you'd probably share the gospel with them. Uh, but you don't put them in charge of the place. Uh, you, uh, you don't put expectations on their behavior or, or, or judge them for the sort of lives they're living. Um, you, you don't be too vulnerable with them. You don't tell them things about yourself that would be inappropriate for the level of relationship you have. Um, And you definitely don't speak condemnation over their lives or expect them to act as anything other than a non-believer. Well, that is exactly how you treat a believer who refuses to be reconciled. That the point of of this stage is not excommunication. 
It's just that you've moved from dealing with a brother in Christ uh, to, for lack of a better word, an unrepented sinner. And so what you do is essentially you go back to step one um, and the issue becomes a gospel issue. And so you're back to trying to use this issue to point them to Jesus, to uh, show them the gospel and, and, and hoping and praying that they find repentance in Jesus Christ. And so look, can I just say, if you get to this stage, it should absolutely break your heart. Like this should not be an easy thing for you to do and go, okay, they're out of my life, I'm done, I'm moving on. That, that it, should, it should tear you up inside. It should be painful in the same way that anytime an unbeliever rejects the gospel, that is the same sort of emotional response you should have to this stage. Uh, but honestly, I think the reason Jesus puts it in this process is because it, it sort of frees you up in a way that I, I can't think of any other uh, approach that would do the same thing. It, it changes your sense of justice about the issue. Because if, if a 20-year-old man walked up to you and punched you in the face, uh, you have full right to be offended, to be upset, to want to do something about that issue. Uh, but if a three-year-old walks up and punches you, I mean, they, they don't know any better. Uh, and, and in the same way, if, if someone who's supposed to be in the, in the fellowship with the, the body of believers, if they're going to act like they're an unbeliever, and you've decided, no, from this day on, I'm going to treat you like you're an unbeliever, then your expectations of their actions, uh, they're going to completely change. Uh, so, so that's the process. Uh, you, you get one-on-one, uh, you get godly medi- mediation, you go to the church, and if all of that doesn't work, then you step out of fellowship. Uh, and I know those are really simple steps. It, it seems like it'd be really easy to do, but if you've actually ever had to walk through them, it is difficult. <laughs> it, it's hard to, to get in a room with someone that you're having conflict with. It's uh, hard to bring other people into that space and show them sort of your dysfunction and your mess. And it's definitely hard to uh, accept the fact that you're going to lose a level of relationship you once had. That honestly, this process is so difficult that if Jesus didn't say these next couple of lines, I don't think we could do it at all. Uh, that Jesus goes on in verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, there are eternal implications for your relationships here on this earth. And then verse 19, and this is one of the most misquoted verses in all of scripture. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, what we do with this verse most of the time Uh, is we'll be hosting some sort of church event or a small group and like no one rocks up. And then the the good meaning worship pastor gets up and he says, you know what? If two or more are gathered in my name, there I will be and we continue with the service. Uh, That's not what this verse is about. And and honestly, if we're we're believers, we've got the Holy Spirit in us. Jesus is always with us. We don't need two people. um, So we're good on that front. Uh, But but what Jesus is actually promising here is that if we walk through this process, If we do conflict the way that he says we are to do conflict, then he will be present through that process. Uh, That where two or three are gathered in my name, there I will be. That the manifest presence of Jesus, the Holy Spirit in us, is dwelling in the middle of that conflict and he is helping the, the process of restoration. And not only that, because both parties in the conflict are Christian, uh, then what that means is if they choose to agree on reconciliation, 
if they choose to forgive one another, if they choose to let love cover a multitude of sin, uh, then because two two or more of you agree on earth about that thing, it will be done by your Father in heaven. So again, you get face-to-face, you get godly mediation, you go to the church, and if that doesn't work, you step out of fellowship, and Jesus promises us that if you do that, if you follow that process, God will be in it. He will be working through it, and there can be reconciliation. Not there has to be reconciliation, there can be reconciliation. And look, honestly, I I wish I could just end the message there um, and just sort of, we all go home happy. We've got this new process tucked away in the back of our head. But um, what's really heartbreaking if we jump back to Acts about that section of scripture is that Paul and Barnabas, they, they don't do that. That as far as we can tell in this section of scripture, they don't reconcile. That chapter 15 does not end with a nice, neat little ending and they all hugged and and sung kumbaya and and went on this mission journey together. Uh, That verse 39 in in Acts goes on, Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and, and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. That Paul and Barnabas, they separate and go in different directions. And I don't want to run over this too quickly because I actually think there's some real pain going on in this moment. Uh, I I think Paul and Barnabas, they probably left each other's company and there was yelling, there was anger. Uh, Probably some some words were said that they they would otherwise not have wanted to say and they they leave each other's presence and they're they're heading on their boats and sailing in different directions. Uh, But when their emotions cool down, when, when the heat of the moment passes, I think both of these men are hurting deeply. I mean, Paul is Paul, so he's probably not showing it externally to people around him. Uh, but I reckon he's, he, he's mourning. The loss of not only a, a fellow worker in ministry, but a, a deep, deep friendship. I mean, again, Paul and Barnabas, they've known each other for 10 years at this point. They've suffered together. They've seen success together. They've, they've done church and ministry and life together. And now all of that is broken over what? A staffing issue for a mission trip. Like, like really, this is an HR issue, and yet it has broken up what was once a deep and abiding relationship. And again, I, I don't think this actually had to happen. But, but I do think the pain is all too real. And look, again, God does not promise us that there will always be reconciliation. Um, and, and so sometimes there are going to be moments where we go through this process and it doesn't work out. But where there's hurt, where there's pain, where friendships are lost. But what God does promise us is that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And honestly, I don't know what broken relationship is sitting on your heart right now. I don't know what name or face is sitting in your mind's eye. I don't know if it's a relationship with um, a parent or a sibling or a friend or a partner. I mean, honestly, I don't know the pain you're experiencing. I don't know how, how much it's weighing on your heart. But church, God understands And God knows your pain. He knows your suffering. And he promises us that he is close when we are in those moments and he is weeping with us. That God is present in the pain.
And look, what I also need you to know is that God actually works through the mess of those sort of situations. Uh, that what nearly every single commentary I read this week on this verse had to say is that because of this split, the split, the effectiveness of their ministry was greater than it could ever have been if these two men stayed together. Uh, that just, just right from the get-go, um, instead of one mission trip going out, there are two. Uh, instead of uh, one, uh, instead of two missionaries going out, there are four. That there are now twice as many uh, people going out spreading the gospel, twice as many people hearing the gospel, and twice as many churches being encouraged. But not only that, be- because of the split that occurs, two new leaders are allowed to step into that place and be developed where otherwise they, they may have go- gone unnoticed. I mean, just look at John Mark, right? Uh, honestly, I think Barnabas is probably right about the sort of person John Mark could be. Uh, that if you track through the trajectory of his life, um, his journey completely changes because of this mission trip. Uh, that, that if Barnabas hadn't fought for him, if Barnabas hadn't brought him along, I don't think he's staying in ministry. Because when, when you fail one mission trip, and then the second mission trip, the, the head pastor says, no, you're not coming with, I think at that moment you turn away and say, okay, I'll go do something else. But because he goes with, because he joins this this mission trip, he goes on to write a book of the Bible you've probably heard of, the gospel according to Mark. And and look, it's not a super creative name. It's just the gospel according to Mark. But um, one of the four gospels that we have in our Bible today would not exist if this separation hadn't happened and John Mark was allowed to go with. Uh, But you know who else gets developed? Uh, Well, next chapter, we're going to be introduced to a young man called Timothy. And look, if you've been around the Bible for a bit, Timothy is a pretty big deal. Uh, When when you have books of the Bible named after you, you, you've done pretty well for yourself. Uh, This is the man who eventually becomes Paul's prodigy, uh, a man who eventually would take over Paul's ministry. Uh, His name appears as co-author of six different books in the Bible. Uh, He becomes the senior pastor of the church of Ephesus, which is this massive church. Like, like he is a huge player in the second generation of the body of Christ. But before he was any of that, he, he was a young man that, that Paul saw had, had potential and invited him to join them on a mission trip that he was already part of. And honestly, if they'd gone with Paul's plan or Barnabas's plan, I don't think we have a Timothy because that boat is full and they don't have enough room to invite anyone else to join them. See, church, God uses our brokenness. He moves through our mess. That even when our world feels like it's falling apart, God is still working. And I don't know who needs to hear that tonight, church, but Romans 8.28 says we know that God is working all things for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. And look, you may look turn to me and say, Liam, you don't know my situation. You don't know the pain I'm walking through. You don't know the the, the relational uh, heartbreak that is going on in my life right now. There is no way in the world God could be moving through that. And and you know what? You're right. I I don't know your situation. I I don't know your story. I I don't know your pain, but I do know God. And I do know what Jesus did on the cross. And, And if God can take the most broken, desperate situation in all of human history 
Jesus Christ, the Son of God, hanging on a cross to die. The moment where it looked like the enemy had won and the entire world was coming to an end. If God can take that broken moment and he can use it for the good of all creation and use it to reconcile a broken people onto a holy God, then I'm telling you, God can take your divorce. He can take your separation. He can take your broken relationship with a family member or your parents or your siblings or your friend and whatever it is. And he can work through that brokenness. And he can use it for for your good and for his glory. That God is a God who works even in the midst of our pain. See, church, in this world, you will have conflict. There's no doubt about that. There's no um, second uh, thought that it, it will happen. And I hope that at the very least, this message has equipped you with how we're supposed to deal with. But, but as I was reflecting on this, this whole idea of regret this week and uh, the, the fact that the biggest source of regrets we have in our life tend to be relationships, it, it got me thinking to the fact that God can actually move in the spaces that we think are done and dusted. And, and the band can come up as we finish this off. But the thing about broken relationships is they tend to be a thing that we put off. Because honestly, it's hard, Right? It's hard to get in that room with that person. It's hard to try and have the conversation that there's too much pain there. And so if we put off those broken relationships for long enough, then eventually they get to a point where we go, you know what? This is never going to change. This is never going to be reconciled in my life. So I'm not going to even try. And look, honestly, Paul and Barnabas, they could have left it like that, right? They could have gone their separate ways. They could have uh, both gone to plant tons of churches and equip tons of uh, uh, people and just do the gospel life that God had called them to. And they could never have crossed paths ever again. But they didn't choose to end things like that. And we're not told how, we're not told when it happens, but by the time you get to the end of Paul's life, it is clear in his writings that at some point along the way, he went back and he reconciled with Barnabas. Uh, that in 1 Corinthians, he refers to Barnabas as a, an apostle of great standing. Uh, in Colossians, he instructs the church in Colossae to uh, welcome Barnabas with, op- with open arms and love. That those two men restore their relationship. And, and not only that, um, John Mark, by the time you get to the very last letter Paul ever writes, 2 Timothy, uh, he, he writes to Timothy and says, Timothy, I'm in jail and I want you to come and visit me. And when you do, when you come and visit me, make sure you bring John Mark along with you because he is useful to me in the ministry of God. That that relationship got restored as well. And honestly, I know there are people in this room tonight and you've got those broken relationships. You've got, there's conflict that's happened. There's people that you've turned away from and you've sort of said, nah, it's done. It can't be restored. It can't be made well again. But church, can I just say, God is in the business of reconciliation. That again, 2 Corinthians, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That we can reconcile with others because Jesus first reconciled us to God. And I know that's not always possible and it takes two people for that actually to work, but I think it's what God wants to do. 
And, and so I, I think there are some people in this room that at the end of the service, you need to go away and, and you need to start that process rolling. You need to reach out and, and make a phone call or set up a, a catch up and, and you need to get in a room with someone that has hurt you deeply and they've broken your trust and just say, hey, how can we make this right again? How can we move forward? How can we start things going here? So some of you, you're midway through that process and you actually need to trust that God is still in it. That where two or more are gathered in my name, there shall I be. And you need to move on to the next step and you've done the face-to-face thing and you need to get mediation or maybe you've done mediation and you need to go to the church leadership. But you just need to continue along that process and trust that God is actually working through it. And then finally, I think there are people in the room tonight and you need to forgive. That before you even attempt to touch that, that, that hotspot, that, that hurt in relationship, you need to let go of, of unforgiveness in your heart. That, that holding unforgiveness against someone is like um, drinking poison and hoping that they die from it or setting yourself on fire and hoping that they die from smoke inhalation. That, that it ruins you from the inside out. And honestly, you just need to let go of that. So I'm just gonna pray and I'm gonna pray over us and pray over our broken relationships. And um, then we're gonna finish with one last song of worship. But please tonight, don't let those broken relationships be something that you continue to regret for the rest of your life. Please let it be something that you've at least gone to God and you covered it in prayer and you've tried to go through this process. So Lord, I just thank you that you are in the business of reconciliation. That whilst we were still sinners, whilst we were still in active opposition to you, Lord, you came on a rescue mission for us. That you did not want to leave the broken relationship we had with you and so you mended at great expense to yourself. And Lord, I just pray that that spirit of reconciliation, that that ministry of reconciliation you have trusted to us would just be bestowed on each and every person here, Lord. Father, that where there is hurt, you would first come alongside us and comfort us. That you would be close to us in our pain, you'd be close to us in, in our brokenness and just remind us that you're there. But Lord, from that place, you you would lead us into this process. God, God, I pray that you would give us the courage to to stand uh, face to face with someone in private without anyone else being there and just just tell them how they've hurt us and and how they have sinned against us. Lord, I, I pray you would put godly men and women in our lives that we can also come into that room with us and they can mediate the relationship and help us uh, push forward to reconciliation. Father, I pray that you would just give us the heart to go before the church, to step before spiritual authority and ask for them to guide us in our pain. But Lord, above all, we just pray for reconciliation. And Lord, I just wanna pray of a specific relational damage that's happening in the hearts of everyone here, Lord, whether that's with a partner or a spouse or parents or siblings or just a friend, that a friendship that was lost, God, that you would just come into that space. Father, that phone calls would happen tonight, that, that um, things would just change, something would shift in those relationships. 
So Lord, we pray this all in your name. Amen.